Anyway, Mom was like, are you interested? Maybe Evan's interested. Who who could we get interested in a cheap Boston Terrier? And I was like, nobody. Nobody needs a discounted Boston Terrier. I don't want one. <laughs> you much. don't want another Boston Terrier? No, I have too much going on in but my life. But they're so cute. I spent my entire day just not doing anything but going from one person to the next, dealing with problems. Um, anyway, I don't need another living creature. That poops and pees on the floor and needs attention and needs fed. But we have kids. Exactly. We don't need another living creature to handle. Hey, flush the toilet! Too busy to flush! All right, hey everybody, welcome to Too Busy to Flush. I'm JR. And I'm Molly. And if this is your first time joining us, we always start out the show by deciding whether or not to get another dog. <laughs> uh, that's actually not true. I am loosely, I'm kidding. Um, we are, Molly and I have been married for 15 years. This is our podcast where we invite you to sit around our virtual table and live life with us in a world where people are weird and hard. We have four kids, ages 13 through five, and we have apparently now a small hobby farm. And it's not really a farm because we only have one thing that's giving us anything chickens. We have 18 of those that are giving us something. Yeah. Uh, and if you're I keeping track, since... if you're keeping track of the chicken count, <laughs> You'll know that it decreased one more here in the last less than the week last or two. Time. We did not record last week, you guys, because we we had the plague. We still have it in our household a little bit. We three to four days of fever and absolute lethargy and throwing up, and then dry cough that is moving into a wet, chesty cough, and. Uh, our five-year-old uh, spent, she started getting sick on Friday. She literally spent three days where I think she got off of the couch twice in those three days and slept that entire time and was tired enough that I had to, she wasn't acknowledged, she wasn't recognizing that she was thirsty. And so I was having to remember to pump fluids into her. And, uh, she still, she took like a four hour nap today and is sitting up as we record watching Ninjago with her sisters. But, uh, just golly, it's been, it's been a rough couple of days. And then in the middle of that, well, it was, it was two weeks ago on Friday that we lost a chicken. It was, well, it was Thursday night and the girls came in from, giving him treats or something and we're like there's one that's not really moving around and i was like we'll bring her in and they were like her name's henderson she's the biggest of the barred rocks which are the black and white ones and her I was name like, was henderson her name was henderson that's hilarious so henderson uh was really lethargic and her underside if you're familiar with chickens her underside was really red and hot and swollen and i it seemed like maybe she was egg bound which means that an egg gets stuck and doesn't come out and you have like 48 hours to try to get it out before it gets infected. And so we did Epsom salt baths for her several times and massages. And I was like, I just really don't feel like there's an egg in there. Uh, and anyway, she just, she was very sweet, very calm, just rested in our arms. I ran out to one of our farm supply stores and got some electrolytes for her and some minerals because apparently calcium can help the muscles relax or contract. I can't remember. It's been it's been a couple of weeks uh, to, to push an egg out and was pumping those into her with a syringe and she just got more and more weak. And then I started doing more Googling and these breeds of chickens that produce a lot of eggs, if they get stressed, essentially they get kind of a backlog deeper in their system before there's a shell on it. So it's not like there's an egg that's stuck that can't come out. It's more like there's a whole bunch of yolks that have basically created a traffic jam in their system. And then those create an infection and there's really nothing you can do about it. 
You can give them antibiotics, but that requires a vet visit. And then even then, it's very iffy if the antibiotics will take or not. And I was like, I don't even know what vet we would take a chicken to because I know our normal vet doesn't take chickens. And given the chances of it actually, you know, being successful, I'll just do what I can. Put her in a dog kennel was going to bed on Thursday night. She's chilling out in the dog kennel. I went into my diet. JR, that was the day that you had gotten up super early to try to go hunting. Well, not to try. You went hunting. It was oh. unsuccessful. But so J- it's like... We got into elk, but it was unsuccessful. JR was out, you know, so he's out cold. The kids are all in bed. I brush my teeth and come out to turn off the lights in our kitchen. And the chicken is in, was in a dog crate in a bin of hay. And she, although she had not moved for hours, had just been lying there with her eyes half open, she had climbed up out of the, I don't know if I ever told you this full story. She had climbed, because I didn't want to traumatize the kids. I just told them that she died on Thursday night. She had climbed up out of the thing, out of the bin of hay, completely out of the dog crate, and was stretched out, like, like, as far as she could be stretched out, legs stretched out b- behind her, neck stretched out, and she was stiff and dead. <laughs> and I I had suspected something was up because I came around the corner from our bedroom and Minerva, one of our cats, was sitting probably 20 feet away from her and her eyes were like saucers, just sitting staring at this dead chicken on our kitchen floor, just like UFO eyes. <laughs> She's just, like, not blinking, staring at this dead chicken on the floor. It is so wild to me how animals sense death and things like that and how different animals treat death, um, just in the animal kingdom in general. That's a total aside, but it's very interesting to me because some some animals will cannibalize their weak ones, um, you know, if that's going to weaken the herd. Uh, others will abandon, others will like circle around and wait until the one that is for sure dead. Uh, anyway, it's just fascinating to me. How Humans animals... are a little bit like that too. Like if a rich relative dies, they all kind of circle, circle around and kind of wait. Waiting. Well, have you ever seen <laughs> the, have you ever other. seen the video of, there was a, like an older elephant that died and these elephants made a circle around it and made like mourning noises for a no, day or I two, seen that. that's weird. Apparently, elephants like have very deep attraction, you know, very deep affections and relationships within their herd, and so they deeply grieve the loss of somebody from hmm. their herd. Didn't know that. If you guys are also wondering, um, no, we are not. Even though we got dual purpose uh, chickens, eggs plus meat, Molly has opted not to harvest our two. Uh, the two that have, that died. have died. Well, I mean, when they're dying of infection or of the other one with kind of weird heat exhaustion. Yeah, it's it's also kind of weird to eat something with a name. I don't know. I'm 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 chickening uh-huh. out on eating <clears throat> them. <laughs> we'll see. I think Titus is the only uh, one of the kids who would be. A I little... wish I had. I wish I had a. I was quick enough to have another pun come back for that, but I don't. Yeah, sorry. I don't know. I, I mean, you could do it without the kids even knowing. It'd be um, good for the kids. I'm not sure that you could because they check on them multiple times a day unless it's bitterly cold. And no, no, no. What the I mean one is... who died, there were five that looked identical. And this one, they knew by name right. just by how I heavy mean, she what was. What I mean is you tell them it's gone, but then you oh. harvest it and feed it to them and they have no idea. Yeah. I don't know. I think I would rather just tackle the circle of life head on and be like, look, you guys always knew that we were going to eat these sweet pets. (laughs) Okay, so I didn't get to this, but if you guys are wondering where the heck we're going to go on the show, we don't have any idea. We don't plan the show. This is if you're new. We don't plan the show out. We don't don't pre-produce. We don't do any of that stuff. We just sit down and start talking. Um, We're sort of like Joe Rogan. But less profane, shorter, and way less distribution. Yeah, yeah, way less fan base. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. We're like, we're, we're like Joe Rogan, but not at all. I like it. <laughs> I like how that works. 
Um, so speaking of that, well, first of all, there's a there's a roadmap in case you haven't found it already. There's a timestamped roadmap roadmap in the show notes. So something funny came through my feed, Molly, and I want to ask you about this because I totally forgot, and I'm sure people didn't know they could do this. So there is a musician contact of mine here in town. Her name is Jess, and she uh, I met her at a songwriters festival or a songwriters round that she was hosting. Come to find out, you know. All of her songs come from a very bad divorce. She was homeschooled. She's Christian. She's, so we related on that whole thing. But she's really attractive and really gregarious, and people are drawn to her, and I'm not. So there's a big difference there. Anyway, she recently got remarried to a strapping young Marine. I, I don't think he's young. But um, she posts stuff on Instagram that um, resonate worldview-wise with mm-hmm. Molly and I. You know, things like... Uh, political things and anti-vax things and just state of the world state of the world things and farming things anyway she, <laughs> she she posted the other day and i responded to it she posted a picture of a of a box of loofahs and she said me i'm going to grow loofahs this year my <laughs> husband and then this picture of a box of loofahs <laughs> said and so i responded i said molly was just talking about growing them she said, well, now I have enough plastic ones to last the rest of the year till I can grow and harvest mine. He had no idea I was planting this, but the timing was just hilarious. That is hysterical. Um, I got my seeds the how, other day. Yeah, I have so, loofah seeds. So tell me, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because I find it interesting and I actually forgot the whole thing. So the loofahs we buy at the store are not are, are fake? Uh, it depends on what you mean by loofah. If you're talking about like the plastic rolls of poofy netting, yes, they're plastic. Yeah, okay. If you if you buy something that looks like dried fibrous, it looks more like something that would come out of the ocean. It looks a little bit like coral and it's like light brown and really stiff and then you get it wet and it's a little bit more squishy. Those gr- those are a gourd. They're in the you know gener- generally speaking they're in like the pumpkin uh squash sort of family. But they grow inside with these stringy things. And what you do is you, it seems like the thing to do is you grow it on a trellis. So I'm planning to put them on the trellis next to my squash patch. That so it grows, really, like a, it grows like a vine? It grows like a cucumber. It looks oh. like a giant cucumber while it's growing. This, and they hang down from the, from the trellis like a giant cucumber would. And you harvest them, and then you dry them completely, from what I understand. And then you peel the skin off, and then you can just get them wet and squeeze them out, squeeze all the the seeds and stuff. So it's not a vegetable. It's nothing edible. It's like this fibrous... Like, you know, you go to the store and you get these... (laughs) Imagine like an actual version of those plastic things at the store growing on a vine. My my brain can't process that right now. No, I was... Surely, surely you've seen a real just. Does it oh, look like a pumice stone? No, it's more. It looks like dried, dried plant fibers, and it's like light brown and kind of a tube, and they cut it into lengths. Let me see. I, I Google real loofahs. Sure. I, I don't. That's funny, you guys. This is so silly. Yeah, I mean, literally the oh. first thing that comes up. So huh. it's not the plastic things. Okay, now I see what so, you're talking about. It does look kind of like a plastic thing, but not like a plastic thing. Right. So so look at this picture. This is how it grows. Yeah. It looks like a giant cucumber. And yeah. then I feel like you, I've seen one of those you before. You peel the skin off. Maybe in somebody's bathroom. And it yeah. I mean, I had some as a kid. One day. They're, they were like fancy and special, but you didn't really like them as much as the bright pink, like fluffy thing that came from bathroom. But these are a lot stiffer and harder, aren't they? They're not they spongy. Are, they're, they are they're, stiffer. They're a lot harder. They, they squish when they're wet. And so people can use Wild. them. People will cut them in half and then squash them and turn them into... A washcloth. Uh, not a washcloth. <laughs> it would be a little bit rough. But a dishwashing cloth. Like a scrubber. Oh, okay. So it's it would be akin to the rougher side of like the... How long? So you'll have. have some by the end of harvest season then? I hope so. Because you got your, your seeds in? I hope so. Is there anything other... Are there any other new things you're planning on planting this year? I'm hoping... That I should know about? Well, I'm... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> that you should know about. Let's see. I'm doing a couple kinds of edible pumpkin. 
because I'm hoping to then dehydrate it. Like I dehydrated our giant pumpkins, which do not make good eating for humans. But we're doing more giant pumpkins. We're doing more giant sunflowers. And I'm plant- hoping to plant them in more places. Sunflowers detoxify soil. So when their roots go down, they pull detoxified stuff. I don't know where the toxins go. But maybe we then put the, the stalks in the fire and burn them or something. Anyway, sunflowers are apparently very good for soil. And I, the ones that, we, that I had last year, I just got the seeds at Winco. And they were absolutely giant heads. They were very cool. The stalks on them, some of the stalks were, what, three, four inches across. They were massive. I'm hoping to do more because I just love them. And I'm also hoping that they will produce seeds because the ones that I had didn't actually produce seeds that had anything in them. So then we can feed them to the chickens. Mm. Um, Let's see. What else? I'm planning to grow comfrey and borage, which are very good for composting Comfrey is an herb that can be used as a, you infuse it, you dry it and infuse it in oil, and it can be very uh, healing for tissue damage, internal tissue damage, like bones and ligaments. So that ointment that I've been having you put on your knee and your shoulder, the main ingredient is comfrey. And so trying to build up a medicinal, uh, you know, war chest, so to speak. Um, What else am I planning to grow? There's nothing really... Oh, I bought some more asparagus. Uh, I can't remember the word for it. Leeks? Are you going to do some leeks? I did not buy any new leek seeds, but I think I have some leftover from last year. Because... I tried growing some last year, and they didn't... Braised, buttered braised leeks are hands down my favorite vegetable. They taste yeah. so good. I I mean I can buy some seeds and yeah. We might turn in. We're already. It's only February and we're talking about gardening, so we might just turn into a gardening podcast. Uh, this is actually partly because of the warm weather, but all sorts of people that I follow on Instagram are posting pictures of last year's garden and planting their gardens. Oh, that's hilarious! And some of the more sought after seed sites. Some of the oh, there are places. There's people in Wisconsin. Who are tapping their maple in, in Minnesota? Who are tapping their maple trees because the however you tell that maple is running, it's like two months early, but it's so warm that they're like we're tapping them now because if we like if we wait, we're gonna miss it. Hmm. And then if it freezes again and all the sap stops running, we got the harvest that we got. But then anyway, your tree dies. Yeah, you can't tap a maple tree twice apparently in one year because it will damage it. Huh? I didn't know that. I didn't either. Uh, so the maple is the sap in a maple tree? Or is maple it syrup is sap from maple trees. Okay, I didn't know if maple, I didn't know oh. if maple trees had sap and maple. No, the, the syrup the... is the sap and it's a particular okay. type of maple yeah. tree that produces it really abundantly and it comes out white and very, very runny, like, like water runny. That's fun. And it, it tastes like slightly sweet water. And then you boil it for days. The amount, I I think that a cup, like to make a cup of maple syrup, takes several gallons of sap that you harvest from a tree. So it's pretty impressive when you think about like the... The quantity of maple syrup that if we, we were go a gardening through. podcast, we would have a guest on who does maple trees. That would be fun. It, there, there aren't maple um, trees like that in our speaking region. Speaking of, but... well, they don't have to be in our region. Oh, that's but true. speaking of garden things, um, I was having a conversation last night with a friend of ours. Her husband is a beekeeper or hobby beekeeper, and we were talking briefly about it. She goes, Oh, are all your bees, did your bees make it? All our bees died. And I'm like, Come to think of it, I have no idea. For a while there, towards the end of the season, we we kind of we have a friend who is a hobby beekeeper, and we asked him to keep a hive at our house for pollination purposes, which worked brilliantly last year. But he was kind of convinced because they were having queen issues that the hive wasn't going to last. So for for comparison, he never added on any layers to the hive at our house. The hive at his house by the end of the summer was over six feet tall because he kept adding sections to it. Yeah. So, and they live in town. So he came by at the end of the season last last year and checked on the bees. He's like, oh, they're still all doing really well. Cool. So I'm so he he, um, he then uh, winterized them. I don't know what that looks like, but he winter, he winterized them and took off. And so I asked Molly last night. I was like, Are, do we have do we have bees? Because she said we'll see bees if they're out. She's and what do you say? You weird. They're all oh. Like, there, so this is really interesting. If you guys remember, our 
I mean, the, our whole region, but we we were at like 35 below for a week's 20 to 35 below for a week straight. We had about four days or was it a week? I can't remember now. We had a very long stretch where we didn't get above 10 below zero. And our chickens, some of our chickens got frostbite on their combs and their waddles. They're all fine. Um, but but it was bitter, bitterly cold, which, yes, I was. So what bees do, because bees don't hibernate or anything, what they do is they form this huddle and they just flap their wings or they rub their wings and they create warmth for each other. I'm not positive about this. I haven't researched it. But and then just the last couple of weeks, we had we've had days that are almost 60 degrees. And on those 60 degree days, I we have a compost pile that's what 20 feet from where the beehive is. And almost daily, we're taking veggie scraps and eggshells and whatnot out to the compost pile. I'm out there and it's positively humming the compost pile because they're attracted to the fruit and whatnot that's in there. And like, I've never seen this many bees humming around the compost pile. So I go over to the beehive and two really interesting things. First of all, there are, I don't want to say hundreds, but way more than dozens of bees flying around, coming in and out where all summer there was just a steady stream of a couple of bees coming in and out of one little corner of the bottom of the hive. And they're like coming through cracks in the top of the hive. (laughs) I've never seen this many bees around this hive. But the other interesting thing was there was a pile. And by pile, I mean like several inches high of dead bees at the bottom, on the ground, at the bottom of it. And I think what possibly happened is the outer ring of bees froze and died in that bitter cold snap. And they were cleaning out the hive. They just Mm. pushed the dead ones out the bottom. And it was it was a little bit shocking how big the pile of dead one what dead ones were. But it was also a little bit crazy to see more bees buzzing around the hive on January 20th than we saw all summer when there was. Tons of stuff for them to be buzzing around, pollinating and stuff. Um, Eric, Elise asked me, our our nine-year-old, she asked me how many bees are in a hive. And so I texted, because I, I, I don't know if it's the same as when you, because when you install a hive, you get what's called a nuke. And that comes with the queen and all of the worker bees for that, for that hive. And I don't know if this number is the same or if you're average or how, if it varies, but um, Eric said about 60,000 bees is in a hive. Wow. So I don't, yeah, I mean, maybe they're, I mean, obviously maybe they're breeding and hatching new eggs. And so we've got a bunch of new bees now, but that's yeah, awesome. I don't know. I love, yeah, I love having, crazy. I really, really enjoy, I don't have any interest in keeping my own bees, but I really like having this whole like ecosystem, uh, this whole, yeah, this whole kind of ecosystem that's doing its thing on our property, yeah. which is really, you fun. know, it's, I, I don't. I'm not educated enough on this to really get into the weeds on details and advocating, but it really is amazing to me how a healthy ecosystem works well with all of its parts and pieces. You know, the, um, you know, so, so regenerative farming is kind of a buzzword in certain circles and You'll see these farmers who have converted their farm to a regenerative farm and they like they don't water their grass where their cows graze. They just strategically rotate the cows and the cows are and then there's one farm that I was studying, like watching a video on. So the cows are in a field and their their poop adds certain things to the grass, to the soil their hooves walking around stir it up in just the right amount. You know, it's not too deep like a rototiller. It's not that it's undisturbed and is going to be rock hard. And they, the way that they eat the grass doesn't pull it up by its roots, just keeps it in a place where it's going to grow and get healthy. And they don't water their crops or their, these fields where the, where the cows are. And these fields are far healthier in terms of, good for the animals grasses and green 
the neighbor's fields where the neighbors are actually irrigating these fields, but they just let the cows do whatever they want. So then they, they move the cows off of a section of land and they wait a little bit of time and then they move the chickens onto the land. And what chickens do is they stir up the soil in a different way. Like chickens, like naturally scratch in a way that is astounding. Like they can be so destructive. We let them out to wander for a couple of days just because we thought it would be funny and the kids were playing outside and we thought they were getting bored, cooped up in their decently sized run. Well, they decided to go explore my garden, which is all put to bed for winter. But one of the things that I've done is I've put a layer of straw over the top of all of the beds so that ideally the like the cab my cabbage my cabbages grew really well last year but I did not protect them from insects and there's a cabbage moth that lays a caterpillar that just destroys cabbage and also poops so all over in it most of the cabbages were inedible so I cut them down and then just let them rot and compost in place and then I put a layer of of straw over the top of it well the chickens go in there and they're like what something to scratch up and they just went bonkers scratching the straw (laughs) and i mean there's dirt in the pathways and i was like no 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 you guys have worn out you're welcome go back to your home um but so the chickens go in where this regenerative farmer has had cows pooping a week earlier and there's two things one they scratch it up in a different way and they spread out the poop so that it's not you know if you've seen cow pies they smother what's underneath them well the chickens stir that up and also the cow pies are attracting bugs that the chickens go crazy on (laughs) and so and so there's this constant rotation and these guys land is tremendously healthy honestly with way less effort and way less cost than a traditional farmer's land would be and so anyway all that to say you know the the microbiome of soil when you have healthy plants growing in it consistently is just insane how good it is for plants and then those plants then have higher nutritional value because they're drawing nutrients out of the soil that these microorganisms that are breaking down roots and whatnot are putting into the soil anyway it's pretty cool how it all works. And apparently I'm the one driving the show today because now I want you to tell all the listeners about this new bread thing you found. Okay. So, uh, which is probably, I will, I will just interject here. It's probably good that you're driving the show because I have been focused on sick kids and my brain is kind of mush just from tiredness and stress of sick kids. And then this week we are, we've started studying world war one because that's where we are in our history cycle. But rather than just read history books about it, I decided to go to the library and check out. I pretty much cleared out their shelves on history books, uh, you know, children's books, picture books, as well as uh, one young adult, the book War Horse, which is a very cool story about an American horse who ended up in World War One. It's, it's fiction, but it gives you historical fiction. So it gives you a sense of the war uh, from the horse's perspective. Well, so far we've read about another horse from Canada. It was a police horse who was sent over with a, with a brigade of policemen who became military in World War One. And then, um, what was the other story we read? Oh, we read about the, the Christmas day armistice or truce where they were like playing soccer and celebrating and doing haircuts for each other and stuff in no man's land. And, um, the, the, main character in both of these stories that we've read Monday and Tuesday for kind of our focus on World War One, the main characters die. <laughs> uh, it's very depressing. It's, I mean, it's, I, I appreciate the fact that they're not sugarcoating. You know, this horse goes over with a rider that he's bonded with because he was the rider. I think he was the police officer who rode him in Canada. And then this police officer dies pretty early on in the war. And his brother, this is a true story, his brother ended up being with the horse for the rest of the war and tried to raise enough money. This community tried to raise enough money to bring the horse back to Canada. But before they could raise the money, the government sold him to Belgian farmers. And so this horse had to... Well, I I mentioned this before, but I'll have, I'll watch with at least, at least they'll probably be fine with it. But with, I, I don't remember... 
all of it, frankly, because it's been a few years, a couple of years. But um, Peter Jackson redid that World War One commemorative documentary with all color footage, mm, and, re- mm-hmm, and it's yeah. it's amazing. Mm. But we should watch that with the kids. Yeah. There's a couple of the older ones. Anyway, yeah. And then today... They shall not grow old. Our book of the day today was uh, a book about in Flanders Fields. Do you do you know that poem at all? It's a book. It's no. a poem. It's the reason that we do poppies on Veterans Day. Like the poppy is the symbol for Veterans Day. Because the poem was written by a, doc- a Canadian doctor who enlisted... And he was just so overwhelmed and exhausted from burying friends, like literal friends. And I mean, he had one day where he saw 700 patients and he actually died of pneumonia towards the end of the war um, because the conditions he was working in were so abysmal. But he Flanders is a region it's kind of, I was telling the kids, it's kind of like how we would describe like the Great Plains. You know, it's not, it's not a geographical locale that you could put a, you know, like a, an artificial locale like Yellowstone County or uh, Montana or Billings. Flanders is an area along the North Sea at the border of France and Belgium. And there was a ton of fighting there. And it's a, it's a fairly big region, but in the springtime, it's full of poppies, the flowers. And so as he's burying people after a good friend of his died and he couldn't even help him, he was blown up. He, he wrote this poem in Flanders Fields, The Poppies Grow. Hmm. And, um, and the book is illustrated with, along with the poem and then has, um, has some historical stuff in between the stanzas. And um, golly, it is it, the the things these people went through. These men, not I mean, there were women helping with the war effort, but it was the men who were suffering absolutely brutal conditions. I mean, the trenches in the winter were full of water and ice. Well, not to mention human refuse. Yeah, um, and so they were literally standing in streams of bitterly cold water for weeks on end. Never took their shoes off. Never took their clothes off. Anyway, like the conditions and sometimes they didn't have food. Sometimes the horses would eat like the tassels off of their shoulders and their hats because the horses were starving too. Uh, anyway, uh, it just, I, all that to say, I'm sort of a depressed mess right now. <laughs> it's, well, reading about war is depressing. Fresh baked bread is not depressing. Yes. So you guys, as a, a lot of you probably know, our daughter, Elizabeth, who is 11, has for several years been baking sourdough uh, using my no-need, pretty easy sourdough recipe. And she sells it to friends and family and, you know, kind of on order. And then she'll bring a box of loaves to our judo class on Thursday nights and sell those you i mean recently she's been selling out sometimes she'll sell one loaf out of five or six but recently she's been selling out i think the little sign that she put up is really helpful yeah but there's there's an assumption though that she's saving up for something so people people ask like i got asked about a month ago like (laughs) so so what is this she raising money for i'm like her college we don't i was like she's not raising this is just what she does they're like Oh, we don't give our kids an allowance. <laughs> yeah, <it's> like, <laughs> that's yeah. funny. Uh, yeah, so she and it's I mean, it it's my recipe. It's good bread. It's not like she's people. Sometimes get a, you even grind the wheat right before. Well, you not it. for not for those stuff that she sells. OK, uh, the, doing bread with freshly ground wheat is a little bit more involved than just get on it. mixing. Huh? Get on it. Well, I do do bread with freshly ground wheat, <laughs> and it's fine, just not her. Anyway, um, so we do the bake it in the Dutch oven method where you preheat your Dutch oven in an, in your oven so it's like 450 degrees, and that, then you put it in with the lid on, and it kind of steams it and gets that nice chewy crust, and then you take the lid off to finish it. The, the challenge with that is twofold, threefold actually, one... I don't trust even an 11 year old. And she's probably doing this for three years, maybe. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm not going to give an eight year old a 450 degree oven and a very heavy cast iron pot 
and think that she's, I regularly burn my hands taking the lid off. I will brush my hand against the top of the oven and have, you know, a burn there for a few, that stings for a few days. I'm not going to hand her a very heavy giant pot and expect her to be able to carefully put a loaf of bread in. And so I do all of the baking for her. She does the, the mixes the dough, usually shapes it. And then I do the actual baking just because it seems dangerous to have her do that part. Also, one of the two main Dutch ovens that I've been using is old enough and is not as expensive as the other one. And the enamel is chipping on it. And so it probably needs to just be thrown away, this pot, or put Mm. in the kid's sand pile, not used for food anymore. And the other issue is I've got two decent soup pot sized big pots and then one that's... I don't know, like a quart, two quart, maybe quart and a half pot and the loaves of bread. And I can barely fit those three in. My oven doesn't close all the way with the two big ones in the back and then the one kind of shoved in in the middle. Uh, And then the smaller pot, when you put the lid on, you have to take that lid off earlier because if the bread rises as it should, it pushes against the lid of the pot and then doesn't rise anymore. And so you'll get this kind of flat topped loaf where the others have like a nice uh, round top and are anyway. So all of those issues, I've seen advertisements for these silicone. I don't even, JR's going to have to just post links for it. I'll post links. I'm sure. Yeah. So they're, it's like a silicone bowl that's got flaps on the sides and you put your loaf of bread shaped in the middle of it. And then you fold it over and let it rise. And then we, oh, we've been, I'm still figuring out my method, but what I did today was I let it rise in the kind of boat thing to be kind of an oblong shaped loaf. And then you score the top because sourdough is big on what's called oven spring. So it should continue rising pretty dramatically when it's in the oven cooking at that really high high heat and so um i bought one off of amazon a couple of weeks ago tried it out liked it checked on ebay because if you guys don't it, i really like shopping on ebay <laughs> for for i mean it's not the old school ebay but uh, i get a lot of used books on ebay because all of the other discount book sites like thrift books and all like goodwills like i've recently bought a book from goodwill of orange county but they post their inventory on ebay and usually offer free shipping and so for example oh here's here's the one like really cheerful thing i'm curious who else out there read the mandy books as a kid i mentioned them to jr the other day And he was like, oh, my gosh, my sister read all of them. And there's, like, probably 30 or 40 Mandy books. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google Mandy book, M-A-N-D-I-E. And it's a series of stories about a young girl. I can't remember. She becomes an orphan. She's part Cherokee Indian, and she's got this mysterious Uncle Ned Cherokee who, I mean, the book that... I picked up and read in two nights the other night. She's in like Germany and uncle Ned comes riding on a horse through the forest, saving the day and looking out for her. Like he just always in the background and appears at random times to rescue her from these mysterious situations that she gets herself in. So anyway, Lily, our 11 year old has been complaining that she doesn't have things to read. And unlike Titus who will reread his favorite books over and over again. She doesn't want to reread stuff. And I was like, well, have you tried? There's a couple of my old Mandy books on her bookshelves. And they're like books 14 through 18. And I was like, have you tried these? And she's like, no. And so I picked one up and read, I think it was book 18, read it in two evenings and was like, you know, it's maybe not quite as good as I remember because the ending didn't totally resolve and it's one of those where everything resolves in the last, like, three pages. The entire mystery is, like, the end. But uh, the friendships that she has are very sweet and the way that she processes life. And anyway, I 
just on a whim, was like, I wonder if they have these books on eBay. And so I did a search for Mandy Book Lot. And instead of, like, they have book lots all over on eBay, but they also have con- have created volumes of the books. So I think volume one is maybe book one through four. There's four or five books per volume. And I found these volumes for six to eight dollars per volume. So four to five books worth of reading for six to eight dollars and free shipping on all of them. So I bought, I think, four or five volumes worth of Mandy books, which is maybe 20 books worth of books. And they should all be trickling in in the next few days. And I'm hoping that Lily takes a liking to them like I did. If she doesn't, we've got two more girls coming down yeah. the line who might, and I'll, I might reread them for to myself just for fun. But anyway, if there's any other Mandy, you know, people in our generation who read the Mandy books growing up, give us a shout out because it's fun to reminisce like that. So anyway, I'm on eBay. <laughs> I'm on eBay. I decided to shop for these silicone bread pans and I ended up getting a set of four of them for on Amazon for a generic one, I paid. Maybe... Are they actually called like a bread pan, or would it be like a bread silicone? I, I don't thingy? know. Form. I think it. Form? I think the search that I did was a silicone bread form. Okay, I'm gonna change my show notes here because I had. Yeah, I I'll, I'll find I'll find you an Amazon link, and I'll also find you an eBay link. But on eBay, there. Let's do Amazon because then we get a kickback. Yeah, but I want to be honest with people okay. on Amazon for an off-brand one. I paid maybe $16. And it's definitely better quality. It's a thicker silicone. It's bigger, slightly bigger, millimeters bigger. But on eBay, they're, they're when you're buying in bulk, you know, so I bought four and they were maybe $10 each as opposed to 16, which when you're buying multiple ones adds up, but they're lighter. So Lily will be able to, to do this all by herself in a hot oven. And I will trust that. And also, I can fit four in the oven at a time, and we usually will do two rounds of baking things. So I could bake eight loaves of bread in a day instead of my max of six um, and have more consistent a, Is there a qualitative difference in the cook, in the bake, between the two different thicknesses of silicone? Not that I've noticed, no. I haven't really been paying attention, but I don't think so. Now you've got something to pay attention to. Yeah. I've mostly <laughs> been... so. The recipe that we use, it rises enough that I'm also cautious about leaving it closed. It kind of like folds over on itself. And I'm cautious about leaving it closed because the bread rises and gets bigger than what can be contained in that. So for today's loaves, I left it open and I scored it and then I just slid them in with it open. And what I've been focused on instead of the qualitative difference of the baking is... When you put the lid on a Dutch oven, it steams it. And so you get, it just makes the crust shiny and chewy and what what you expect from an artisan loaf. So a professional bakery that produces artisan loaves in very hot ovens in bulk, they actually have misters that spray hot steam on the loaves as they're baking. And so <coughs> the putting the lid on the Dutch oven is a way of approximating that. But the other way that you can approximate that, which there's, if you do a YouTube search for artisan bread in five minutes a day, there's a pair of bakers that teamed up and created this method that's not sourdough, but is a slow ferment of bread. And you start the dough and then you can keep it in your fridge and just shape the the dough and bake it as you want fresh bread. And they have a system where Rather than do the Dutch oven, you put a tray beneath where the bread is baking and you pour water in and the water steams, you know, it evaporates while it's cooking in the hot oven and steams the loaf. And so I've been doing that uh, and I've been focused on crust quality rather than difference in the different types of silicone. So there's that. Um, <laughs> I don't want, that was the last, literally the, <laughs> the last, last question. Thing that you had to raise. All the I'm questions. Like, 
Finished bread. What can we well, think that's about? all the questions I had to bring up with you know, Molly on the show well, today. So here's one other I thing. I mean, you've been reading some interesting stuff in Canavox, I guess. You could update us I there, but I don't know if... Been. I think I should save that for a conversation we do, when I'm fresher. Should we no, talk about parenting? No. Sex? No. Marriage? <sighs> Friends? I will tell you... Friends? The one thing about marriage that it's discussed in Canavox today is pretty much every metric for a particularly a man's quality of life goes up if he's married his long-term financial well-being his physical health uh likelihood of healing from cardiovascular disease and from cancer if he's married and in a good marriage the only health indicator that deteriorates when a man gets married is weight <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, interestingly, for women in poor marriages, health outcomes become worse. Not not like abusive marriages, but just high stress, well, high conflict marriages. Yeah, their health outcomes worsen. Um, I, I no, but do I, they have any tips for guys who want to be married and start families that can't golly, find women? I wish they did. And for women, I mean, it's the same. It's there's a lot of people in our world who desire to be married and the Lord has not granted that. And it's a tough market out there. The dating, mm. the dating world is weird. And, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's, there's, Man. we don't have any, any yeah. cure alls for that. No, what I was going to say, going back to the world war one thing, uh, I was reminded as I was being depressed about world war one is I was, not the only person who was depressed about it coming out of the enlightenment and the industrial revolution. There was this general air in the Western world of invincibility and of optimism. And with all of the burgeoning technology, you know, we've got vehicles and we've got all of these, you know, they, you know, they just felt like they were on top of the world and they felt like morally humans also were improving at that rate and so there was this, um, I don't know, just this optimism about humanism, the human spirit and optimism. And a lot of people experienced psychological devastation when they saw the amount of evil that could be perpetrated and the amount of human loss and human suffering at this war. Like Even the Flanders Field book that we read today said that the Brits figured that when they entered the war in August of 1914, they figured the war would be over by Christmas. And the war didn't end for five more years. And the number of millions of people who died, suffered tremendously, and then died, or had lifelong... I mean, my dad's grandfather grew up... I was telling the kids this the other night. My dad's grandfather grew up in Northern California wanted to enlist in the war, like many eager young men who wanted to fight for what was right, went to Canada and enlisted in the Canadian Army. He's over in, I don't actually know what part of Europe he was in, but he was hit by a grenade and lost both legs and an arm. And the happy ending of this story, his name is Grover. Grover recuperated. By the way, Molly's dad looks exactly like, like Grover. Grover. Spitting image. Yeah. It's wild. Grover recuperated in a hospital in England and ended up marrying an English nurse that her name was Helen Margaret Elizabeth. And he ended up marrying her. And they he took her back to Northern My California. My mom's mom was an English nurse. Uh-huh. Well, Boston. But English heritage. <laughs> so anyway, she so they they went back to Northern California, had four daughters, and raised them there, and literally he in Eureka, California is very hilly and he had a three wheeled golf cart that had a, a pump handle. So you moved it by pumping one handle up and down. And my dad says his arm, <laughs> he had one arm, right? No legs, one arm. That arm was like a beast because he got around town with this one pump, three legged or three wheeled uh, golf cart. And People with disabilities were not super well regarded in those days. And so even though he was brilliant, hilarious author, he did not make a lot of money, could not 
I think his parents had like a wood mill or something, couldn't carry that on because he wasn't physically able to, and was living off of a Canadian army disability pension. And so he raised those four daughters. They were not super wealthy by any means, but. So your dad has, uh, Molly's dad has a story growing up when they went to go visit him in California and he and his cousin, Dan took the three wheeled cart out one day. And of course, didn't tell Grover, Grandpa Grover, but took it out one day and they were scooting around on it. And apparently they got going down a hill and couldn't stop. It. And he said that handle was going <laughs> back and so fast. And they were just terrified. So I think they bailed they, they all bailed and crashed into some trees or something like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 So anyway, it's uh, interesting to, you know, to be able to communicate to my kids that they, their heritage is literally part of this world war Canadian soldier, world war one, you know, damaged and they would ship them across the English channel from France, heal them up in, in army hospitals. And then the ones who were well enough to go back, it was apparently this tremendous shock to their system to go from this warm, comfortable, well-fed English hospital back to, you know, supply chain issues, cold, wet danger. But no, so what the, the theology of having a steady understanding of human depravity and of God's sovereignty and of God's goodness, I think is something that as I'm, as I'm kind of hit in the face with the devastation of World War I, which, right, so they called it the Great War. This was the Great War and, you know, the war to end all wars. No war could ever be worse than this. There would never be another world war, right? And then 20 years later, there's another world war that's even bigger, has even bigger loss of life. And these intellectuals who have bought into humanism are completely unmoored because they have no, they they think that technology will save us. I mean, it's the, it's the same mindset for transhumanists today, right? Like we can transcend all of humanity's problems b- through technology. And they completely miss the fact that evil resides in our hearts and technology actually enables us to cause greater destruction. You know, the the nuclear bomb, you know, I mean the you know any any improvement in technology enables those with evil intent to inflict more evil on more people. And the there's just a sobering reminder to me to not get caught up in thinking great things about technology. Oh, yeah. And also, the, you know, to not be the sort of person who thinks like, well, that could never happen again. Because 20 years after the Great War, there was another greater war. Although I think most people who are listening to us probably expect World War III sooner rather than later. Who knows? Know. Who knows? Yeah, the world is so... The, this whole everybody's afraid of one world economies and... And, you know, you hear a lot of people talking about, well, China's been buying up all this infrastructure and all the, you know, all the stuff. And it's like, well, you're right. So they take out America. They also shoot themselves in the foot a little bit. I mean, everybody's so in bed with everybody else. It's not now. that they want to take out America. They want to like, take over America. I know. That's that's a different deal. But that's not going to be World War Three. That wouldn't be a World War Three. I don't know. I you, don't know. You take over America subtly and subversively. Because if you do decide to take out guns and ammo and black bombs and all that stuff. This is my theory anyway. And all that stuff and eradicate infrastructure in a country, you're going to be shooting yourself in the foot because you've got so, so much invested. Because our economies are in so... In that economy, yeah. That's inner, my... That's yeah. something running around in my head. Yeah. Um. You know, I... I go through seasons where I get real caught up in my head about stuff like this. And I think where... I mean, where I was going with this is don't think too highly of humanity. <laughs> As... <laughs> As the humanists have in World War One and World War Two. Believe me, I don't think too highly of any of my friends. No, <laughs> but at the same time, have this balance of, you know, so anything is possible in terms of human evil. But also, always remember that he who sits in heaven laughs at these people 
who think that they're going to play God, that they're going to control, you know, World War II, we're going to create this pure race. We're going to, I mean, they inflicted a ton of legit evil on people in the pursuit of their very evil goal. But none of these evil people are going to ultimately succeed because the Lord has plans for this earth that, oh, this is the other thing that I had filed away in the back of my brain. Uh, If you guys are like me and have always had trouble wrapping your head around different people's views of the end times of what is mill, what is pre-mill, what is post-mill, this book that we've been reading in our life groups at church, it's Wayne Grudem's layman's abbreviated version of his systematic theology. It's called, what is it called? Basic Christian beliefs. Something like that. Christians, Christian beliefs or something. We'll find it and put it in the show notes. His description or explanation of what people believe about the end times, their scriptural foundation for it. And then his, he, he puts his cards on the table. Um, is the most concise and clear that I think I've ever read. Oh, you guys, I had a moment where, you know, you have those moments in life where you're like, okay, I've heard all the arguments a gabillion times. And I really feel like I have. I've been to a hardcore, I've been to fundamentalist college. I've been to not so fundamentalist college. I've been a part of a PCA reform crowd. So it's like, I've heard all of the, and then Grudem writes about pre, uh, pre, uh, uh, premillennialism and then makes a distinction between premillennialism and pre-trib. And you can some be a pre-trib premillennialist, but you can you also be a non-pre-trib premillennialist. And I was like, wait, what? Because it growing up, if those you were, were those were synonymous. There was no difference between pre-trib and pre-mill. Yeah. I was like, so now I've got to just, no, I don't even work on it. But anyway, <laughs> if, if you guys are interested in, in having a degree of clarity, if you wrestle with that, I would encourage you to read that book uh, or, you know, find yourself a copy of that chapter at least. But um, my mom was saying that their life group leader made the, who was a retired Baptist seminary or Baptist Bible college professor, he made the comment that there were a lot of amillennialists and an amillennialist believes that we are presently living in the millennium and that the world is gradually, gradually becoming more and more aligned with what the the recreated world glory and her glory should look like. It's gradually getting better and better as the rule and reign of Christ spreads throughout the earth. And a lot of amillennialists were deeply disturbed by World War One in the same way that humanists were, because mm. they had not seen war and devastation ever on that scale, and certainly not in their, in their you know, me- recent memory. And to see humanity on that scale be that destructive was very shook them deeply in terms of what they thought should be happening in the world in terms of anticipating the second coming of Christ. Uh, I, I haven't had time to mull that over too much, but, um, I, I, in, at least in my own experience, certainly do not see the world getting better and better. Well, at the same time, for sure, but the that's Lord... what technology's for. We just talked about this. right. No, but you know, Addie and I were talking the other day. Like she threw something depressing out at me, and I threw something depressing back at her, and then she threw something depressing to me, and I threw something depressing to her. Are you guys she... had a depressing tennis. No, match. no, actually, I mean, the, the great thing was she was like, but, but depression tennis. But I see the Lord working in this area of this young woman's life that I've been mentoring and trying to help. This gal's an orphan, and the foster system failed her and Addie through a variety of circumstances has the opportunity to both share her faith with her as well as tangibly help her with finding babysitting jobs and finding an apartment and furnishing the apartment and she was just delighted at how well this young woman seems to be doing and you know so the Lord she was like let's let's not end on this (laughs) you know because because the Lord is still at work and it's in the 
the Aslan is on the move sort of way where you see, you know, tufts of grass poking through the icy tundra. I was going to say, even in, at least in, in my experience and everybody's experience is unique to them, but, um, God does, I mean, he promises that if our hearts are focused, we'll find, we'll find joy in all those, in all of our labors and things like that. If our, you know, priorities are structured and all that. But a lot of times circumstantially, it's just really, really hard as a human. But I also believe that God will, he, he does sprinkle little things in your life that during hard seasons are a blessing or, are a crumb blessing that you or can restful or something It's like, wow, this is really cool. Yeah. Or maybe it's something small and you've been surrounded by so much large, awful stuff that this really small thing is like, whoa, this is super amazing, yeah. well, dude. And, and for sure, New Testament parables, when Jesus describes the kingdom of God working, it's mm-hmm. like a loaf of bread. Going back to our bread discussion, when I put the dough in a bowl covered to rise overnight, I can check on it three hours later and it looks no different. I can check on it four hours later and it looks no different. When I wake up in the morning, it's more than doubled. And so it's this imperceptible at the moment, you know, everything that in how Jesus describes the kingdom of God working, a mustard seed, the Mm -hmm. yeast, you know, it's, it's small, it's hidden, it's imperceptible. And that is how in this present age, God chooses to work. And we don't know how he's going to, we don't know exactly how things are going to work out at the end but we know the end and i think that's what we have to cling to when we get in weak weak funks like i've been for the last week with the sickness and the grumbly kids on account of the sickness and studying a world war Faith <laughs> is still spending most of her time on the couch yeah so. um hey so before we close the show um how do you how do you like your new chair Mm, I like it. It's better than the one the the other one. I um I might still try to source myself a stool because my legs are just a little bit too short. I mean, but you look super relaxed. It's it's much more comfortable than it oh, was you were before. gonna bring down the the cat's fireplace bed. Yeah, thing. I'm not sure where it is. Yeah, I need to get poofy. something for my feet. Anyway, what Jay is referring to, you guys, is when he redid his studio. He gave me an office chair for my to where for where I sit when we record. And it's kind of a stiff, I mean, it's rolly and it's comfortable if I'm sitting in a computer. I mean, she loves her her chair. She's got the same chair upstairs. She loves the chair in that context. Yeah, but, but I wanted something a little bit more relaxed. And a friend was selling this on Facebook Marketplace and I hit her up for it. And then she ended up giving it to us. Yeah, which so is I'd like to awesome. thank uh, Caleb and Annie for giving us the Anna. chair. Anna, sorry. Long day. Um, so don't go anywhere. When we finish, I'll take a photo of you oh. and put it on our Telegram okay. group. Okay, and then I have to go make dinner because we have to eat We have a minutes. Telegram group, and the link is in the show notes. It's a private discussion group. So jump on there, and I'll, I'll post the photo of Molly in her chair. And um, there's probably 60 to 70 active members on there. And we, we our discussions range from everything from uh, the show content to personal things that people are doing to, I mean, there's just a lot of really fun, a lot of resources are shared too. So we get a lot of new uh, resources to read or articles or things to discuss and look at through uh, community participa- participation, which is really, really great. So we'd love to hear from you there. Jump on and do that. Any other links that we have mentioned or said we're going to link something in the show notes, it'll be in our show notes in the timestamped uh, roadmap. And if you'd like to get a hold of us another way, um, a really good way is our website, www.toobusytoflush, all grammatically correct, toobusytoflush.com or uh, tb, the number 2f.com, tb2f.com. Scroll all the way down, you can send us a postcard. Um, I do have plans to update some of our preferred purchase, uh, preferred item links, you know, and the Amazon links we do on the show do give us a little bit of a kickback. It's like 30 cents here, 30 cents there, but you know, a little bit of 30 cents all kind of add up eventually. So uh, while you're there, head over to the Swag Shack. We've got some Butter Makes Everything Better, faithfully finite and live in truth uh swag now we got some journals some aprons a few other things and somebody on telegram gave me another idea but i don't remember what it was uh it was a phrase that i said you do you before the lord you do you before the lord i think that was what they suggested we do so i might make up a you do you before the lord shirt which would be kind of fun um anyway that said we are 
unless extenuating circumstances prevent us, like being everyone, well, Molly and I didn't get sick, but everyone else was sick last week, totally threw us off. Um, we are a weekly podcast and we are not, we are consistently, usually consistently weekly, just not the same time or same day of the week. So, um, you can generally expect an episode from us podcast. If this is your first time joining us, thank you so much. If you've been with us for a long time, huge thank you, um, for making us a part of your life. And, uh, the greatest compliment you can send us is to share us with your friends. So, uh, do that. If you guys swap podcasts or interesting things, leave us a review on, on Apple iTunes. That really helps us or Apple podcasts really helps, uh, to get the algorithms going and, and suggest us for other people. Do you have anything else you want to add? Molly? Nope. Gotta go make dinner.